You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. My name is Lise Grande, and I am the president of the United States Institute of Peace, which was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a national, nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. We are very pleased to welcome Mr. Stephen Rademacher and Mr. Stephen Hadley for a special discussion today on the history and future of U.S. sanctions. Sanctions have and continue to play a central role in U.S. foreign policy. This is because sanctions have proven to be a powerful tool for preventing hostilities, holding violent actors accountable, and unifying allies and partners. As the United States joins with nations around the world in sanctioning Russia for its unprovoked war of aggression against Ukraine, understanding how sanctions work is essential for strengthening U.S. efforts to build peace. To explore the history and use of sanctions, we are honored to welcome Mr. Stephen Rademacher, who has wide-ranging, distinguished experience working on national security issues in the White House, the State Department, the U.S. Senate, and the U.S. House of Representatives. From 2002 through 2006, Mr. Rademacher headed three bureaus in the State Department, including the Bureau of Arms Control, and the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation. Mr. Rademacher directed the Proliferation Security Initiative, Nonproliferation Policy Towards Iran and North Korea, Strategic Dialogues with Russia, China, India, and Pakistan, and led the U.S. delegation to the 2005 Review Conference of the Parties to the Treaty on the Nonproliferation of Nuclear Weapons. Mr. Rademacher is currently Senior Counsel at Covington and Burling and is a member of USIP's International Advisory Council. Our moderator for today's conversation is Mr. Stephen Hadley. Mr. Hadley served as the U.S.'s 20th National Security Advisor to President George W. Bush from 2009 to 2013, having previously served as Deputy National Security Advisor during President Bush's first term in office. Mr. Hadley is a distinguished attorney, having served as the administrative partner at Shea and Gardner, a principal at the Scorecroft Group, and Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy. Mr. Hadley is a member of USIP's Board of Directors and has the distinction of being one of our former board chairs. Mr. Rademacher, Mr. Hadley, thank you for today's discussion. Steve Rademacher, thank you very much for being with us for this conversation. The subject today is sanctions policy. This is something you've been involved in in the government and now in the private sector and the law firm of Covington and Burling. Uh, let's, let's start off uh, with sort of the broader principle here. Uh, sanctions seems to be, have become the weapon of first resort for the United States in a confrontation or when it's trying to influence the behavior of another party. And we seem to sanctions not only our potential adversaries, but also our friends and some of our closest allies. So what's, what's going on here? And what are the objection, objectives of our sanctions? 
And in your view, how effective has been our sanctions policy in order to achieve those objectives? Well, th thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here, and, and I appreciate you um, asking me these questions. Uh, the question you've just asked is an incredibly broad one. I, I think I could spend the rest of our time uh, answering it. Um, but uh, let, let me just make a few uh, top line points. Um, you know, first of all, there is, there is this, you often hear express the view that uh, sanctions are a new tool and that America is much more aggressive in the use of sanctions today than in the past. Um, it's certainly true that uh, in recent years, we've discovered new ways to apply sanctions, but Truthfully, the use of sanctions uh, as, as, a, as a central tool of uh, U.S. Um, foreign policy is as old as the Republic. In fact, it's older than the Republic because uh, we don't usually think of it this way, but the Boston Tea Party was basically a sanctions enforcement exercise. The uh, you know, colonists were, were boycotting British tea over a tax issue, and, and they dumped the tea in the harbor because the British were trying to force them to, to pay the tax on it. Um, Thomas Jefferson in 1807, uh, in response to the Napoleonic Wars, imposed a total embargo on, uh, on the United Kingdom and on France. And he, he forbade Americans to, to engage in commerce with either country. Uh, it was one of the central policies of the, of the Thomas Jefferson administration. And you know, it was a controversial policy. Um, and, and there's a quote that, that, that I think uh, speaks volumes about this issue that, that um, came from Jefferson in 1808 when, it was, when he was called upon to defend this policy, which was very harmful to, to America's merchants. Um, and and he, he said that uh, when our national interests are threatened, uh, and this is the quote, three alternatives alone are to be chosen from, one embargo, two war, three submission and tribute. Uh, that was true in 1808 when he said that, and it's true today. Um, when, when we face a foreign threat, um, the basic alternatives are, um, to you know, go to war, you know, use military force of some type, and that's often not an attractive alternative. Um, second possibility is simply to accept, someone acquiesce, uh, appease, uh, whatever the problem is. Or third, um, to, to adopt some measure in between that uh, tries to change the situation. And that's what sanctions are. Jefferson called it embargo, but today we, we use the term sanctions. Uh, World War I, uh, very aggressive use of sanctions against the, the central powers by, by the United States and, and Britain working together. World War II, you know, the U.S. oil embargo on Japan uh, uh, is often cited as one of the reasons why the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, because they, they, they calculated they were about to run out of oil, and so they needed to strike while they still had oil. Um, the U.S., you know, an interesting question that people forget to ask, why did Spain, which was basically a fascist dictatorship installed by the Axis powers, why didn't it enter World War II on the side of the Axis? Answer, Roosevelt threatened to impose an oil embargo on Spain if they did that. And Franco decided all of his oil was coming from America. He couldn't risk it. Uh, Hitler said he couldn't replace the American oil. So Franco stayed out of World War II because of the threat of U.S. sanctions. So there's a long history uh, of, of America doing this. Um, and and uh, it is important to understand the objective of sanctions. It's not always to overthrow the government that, that's causing us a problem. Sometimes it's, it's um, simply to uh, complicate life for them, uh, deny them resources so that, that they have a more difficult time uh, threatening us. Other times it's more just to, to express uh, uh, distaste or dissatisfaction, uh, you know, it's signaling. Um, so there, there are multiple purposes served by sanctions. 
but th there's no end to the, the, the situations that arise where given those alternatives that, that Jefferson talked about, war, uh, acquiescence, or something in between, uh, something in between looks best and something in between often includes an element of sanctions. Steve, thank you. That's very helpful because there is a notion that somehow is we we stumbled on the sanctions tool, you know, a decade or so ago and brought it center stage. And that historical context is useful. Let me just ask, though, about the last 20 years, has the way America uses sanctions changed in the period of time you've been uh, dealing with these issues? And if so, how is that? How have they changed? Steve, there, there's been a. Uh considerable evolution in the way the U.S. applies sanctions. Basically, uh, in the last 20, 25 years, uh, we've become much more creative uh, in, in the way we go about it. Um, the, um, th there have been innovations uh, that um, I think have upset uh, some other countries because uh, they are so innovative, uh, but uh, they have proven highly effective, and that, that's why um, in recent years, we've made increasing use of, of some of these tools. The, um, I'd say the, the, the most important innovation uh, was one that really came to the fore in 1996, uh, when the United States began applying what today we call secondary sanctions. So traditionally, the way sanctions worked was uh, they, they were uh, prohibitions on things that persons subject to U.S. jurisdiction could do. So embargo, you know, Jefferson said American ships can't trade with Europe. Uh, that, you know, that was a directive um, <clears throat> that applied to Americans. Um, with secondary sanctions, uh, we go a little bit further and uh, we basically impose penalties on non-Americans, on, on persons who are not subject to our legal jurisdiction. Uh, so uh, where we first saw this um, applied was with respect to Iran and uh, uh, petroleum development in Iran. And some foreign companies were getting ready to develop oil fields in Iran uh, President Clinton had forbidden American firms to do this. Uh, and then the question arose, is there some way we can stop foreign companies from developing these fields? And um, Congress passed a law that uh, provided for that. And, and, and uh, so we were not able, you know, legally the United States didn't have authority to prohibit foreign companies from doing this, but we could impose penalties on foreign companies. We could um, deny them access to the US market. We could um, uh, deny them credit from US financial institutions. Uh, we could prohibit their business executives from traveling to the United States. And so uh, a series of measures like this uh, were uh, uh, declared uh, to be in, in effect as a deterrent uh, to foreign investment in uh, Iran's petroleum development. Um, a number of our allies were upset about that because they wanted to proceed with, with uh, investment in Iran. Um, they were very upset, in fact, and, and the Clinton administration spent years uh, trying to mend fences diplomatically. But what I will say is that in the in the years since 1996, um, uh, the the use of secondary sanctions by the United States has become much more widespread. You see, we see it uh, applied to all kinds of situations, including uh, Russia today. Uh, and um, I would I would not say the Europeans support the idea, but uh, they they've kind of become accustomed to it and um, they, they've adapted to it. And uh, so today, secondary sanctions are a key element of, of the US sanctions toolbox. Another major innovation uh, came in uh, 2011 and 2012 when um, Congress enacted uh, two laws that um, were designed uh, 
to 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 uh, reduce uh, oil exports from Iran in order to reduce the the revenue to Iran, and instead of uh, penalizing the importers of uh, Iranian oil, uh, what what these sanctions did was they they used the the uh, the power of the U.S. financial system uh, and the threat. Uh, uh, that that foreign financial institutions would would feel if they were threatened with uh, denial of access to the U.S. financial system, uh, and uh, essentially the policy that was in play, it, it was implemented was that if foreign banks uh, transferred money to Iran in payment for Iranian oil exports, uh, we we might cut them out of the U.S. financial system, which which would for for, for any uh, large foreign bank uh, that that would effectively put them out of business if, if they couldn't conduct transactions in US dollars through the US financial system. And um, the, the, the policy uh, required foreign, foreign governments to reduce the volume of their oil imports from Iran uh, in order not to be sanctioned, or in order for their banks not to be sanctioned in that matter. Uh, that, that policy was adopted in 2011. It worked so well that less than a year later, uh, Congress refined it. And um, they imposed on top of that a requirement that the foreign banks when um, when money is um, to be paid to Iran for, for Iranian oil export, the foreign banks uh, are to put the money in a, an account in their central bank uh, and uh, hold on to the money, not return it to Iran. They were threatened with sanctions if they returned the money to Iran. Uh, and instead, the money was available in the central bank only uh, for Iran to buy food, um, uh, you know, sort of non non lethal, non threatening items in the economy of the country that was holding on to the money, and you know, the, 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 amazingly, this policy worked very very well uh, because for for countries like India, well, take India for example, um, it was actually an attractive policy for them because what America was saying was we're going to sanction your banks uh, unless you hold on to the money that you owe Iran for the oil that Iran is exporting to you. And then you, you can allow Iran to buy goods in your country. They can buy cars, and manufactured equipment, uh, as, as long as it, uh, you know, is, is not a lethal item. Um, and and so, you know, th this will increase your exports to Iran. Uh, uh, but what you can't do is transfer cash to Iran. Uh, the incentives were attractive, and you, you can imagine the conversations that took place between governments. You know, I guess I shouldn't sing about the Indians, but a government. Uh, saying to the Iranians, hey, we, we want to keep importing oil from you. Um, we, we'd love to pay you for the oil, but unfortunately, the Americans will sanction us if we, if we transfer the money. So I guess we're just going to have to hold on to it. And uh, of course, we'll let you spend it here for anything you, you want to buy in our country. You, you, you can use that money and we'll, we'll export it to you. We're really sorry about this. We wish it were otherwise, but um, that's just the way it's going to be. Well, you know, that actually worked and it's still working. Uh, that is the policy that's in place today. And um, you know, there, there are negotiations going on with Iran today. And one of the major inducements that the Biden administration has to offer Iran to come back to the JCPOA is the fact that billions and billions of dollars are tied up in foreign banks as a result of, of, of this U.S. policy. And um, the U.S. can release that money. It can, it can tell the foreign banks, OK, we, we will not sanction you if you transfer the money to Iran. But so far, the Biden administration has not sent that signal because they're, they're holding that back as an inducement to the Iranians to, to reach agreement on, on returning to the JCPOA. So that's, a, that's been a phenomenally successful tool. Um, and 
you know, it, it, again, it's it's something that was without precedent. Uh, it works only because of um, the central role of the American economy in the global economy and the the central role of the U.S. dollar and the U.S. financial system. Um, the you know, you cannot be a successful bank in a foreign country and not have access to the U.S. financial system. And, and that that regime I just described. Um, rests on the threat that we, we might cut off access to our financial system if, if foreign banks um, transfer money to Iran. Thanks, Steve. I want to ask you two questions about the potential downsides of the, particularly the approach of secondary sanctions. The first one has to do with the fact that in principle, what we're doing is in order to try to hurt the bad guys, we're actually through secondary sanctions putting pressure on our friends and allies. And as you point out, particularly in the 1990s when this got started, uh, our allies in Europe were particular furious about it because it was extraterritorial. It was imposing our policies on them without their consent and in some sense without consultations. That has a downside. And it seems to me the I'd like you to talk about those and particularly in the context of Iran, because what you described with respect to Iran sounded to me in a little bit like the best of all possible worlds, structuring our secondary sanctions in a way, perhaps in consultations with our allies, in a way that the allied governments can actually support the secondary sanctions, because at some level, as in the case of India with respect to Iran, it works for them. Can you talk a little bit about that? And have we actually gotten a little bit smarter here? about using secretary, secondary sanctions in a way that actually perhaps brings the allies on board first uh, and avoid some of the downside and strains in our alliances because of our use of secondary sanctions? This is a critically important question you're, you're asking. Um, the, and and you're, you're right. Um, you know, if, if there's consensus between us and our allies, um, there's often no need to even talk about sec secondary sanctions because yeah. uh, if they adopt the same sanctions we adopt, then we don't have to worry about their companies doing things that we don't want them to do because they're, they're forbidden by by their own governments uh, to do those things. Um, the and that, that's the ideal situation. Uh, what what happened with Iran in 1996 was there there was a divergence and. Um, the U.S. Congress and then the, the Clinton administration uh, were trying to impose U.S. policy on foreign nationals over the objections of, of, of the governments of, of, of those countries. And that that certainly gives rise to friction. Um, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, um, you know, what, the, what the Clinton administration did was a lot of diplomacy to try and smooth over over the issues. Um, they, they worked with some success. A major thing they did, frankly, was they didn't enforce the sanctions. Um, they, they, I mean, the, the sanctions were threatened, but in the vast majority of cases, not imposed. And that, that was one way to, to damp down the anger. Um, had, had they been aggressive in imposing the sanctions, um, there would have been a lot more anger. Uh, but of course, that leads others to suspect that we're merely bluffing with the secondary sanctions. And, and everyone concludes that we're bluffing, then they're not going to, they won't work either. So um, at some point you do have to be willing to apply the sanctions in order for the threat to be taken seriously. Um, I guess my main advice to U.S. policymakers is uh, we, we need to be careful. We need to be restrained in, in when we do this um, because 
as I said, we're, we're only likely to do it when we don't have fundamental agreement. You know, today, with, with respect to Russia, there's fundamental agreement between the United States and, and the Europeans and our, our, our other G7 allies. So there, there's no need to use secondary sanctions, um, at least with respect to them and their nationals, because they're doing they have precisely the same sanctions policies uh, that apply to their nationals that, that the U.S. has. Um, the hard cases are the ones where there's disagreement. And, um, you know, this is a tool that if overused um, will, um, first of all, it will strain alliance relationships. Um, uh, second, it will, will lead, um, and, and this is the bigger problem, frankly, uh, it will lead um, other countries to look for workarounds so that uh, the, the threat of U.S. sanctions uh, has, has less bite. The, the, the biggest bite of U.S. sanctions is the, 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 um, the threat that um, a sanctioned person will lose access to the U.S. financial system. So I, you know, I've been talking about foreign banks and their need to use the U.S. financial system. But when, uh, when, when the United States um, targets a, a foreign national, either a corporation or an individual for, for US sanctions, um, one of the sanctions that's most frequently applied is called asset blocking. That, that means that, that we freeze their bank accounts in the U.S. Uh, but more importantly, um, they can't transfer money through the U.S. financial system. If they, if they write a check in U.S. dollars and it's presented, it, such a, a check in U.S. dollars will clear through the U.S. financial system in New York. And when that money passes through New York, it's frozen. So that, that in both directions, somebody wanting to pay them money or them wanting to pay someone else money. If it's denominated in U.S. dollars, uh, they can't. They they just can't do it. They're they're frozen out. And that's a powerful uh, uh, tool to use against you know foreign foreign oligarchs, uh, you know who 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 are have a lot of money that they're transferring around, or foreign corporations. They're just trying to do business in the global economy. If they're if they're unable to transact transact business in U.S. dollars, um, very very difficult for them to remain in business. And um, that works beautifully um, so long as the rest of the world needs to transact business in U.S. dollars. Uh, but you know it's not it's not written in the global constitution that the U.S. dollar is the, the world reserve currency. Uh, if um, if we overuse our secondary sanctions threat uh, to the point that even our allies decide uh, is too much, there's too much risk, too much downside to them in uh, rely, continuing to rely on the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Um, you know, th th this this magic power that we have today um, will will uh, rapidly evaporate. As you point out, it, the strength of the sanctions at bottom is the. U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency and the international financial system, which we dominate and are a crucial part of. Uh, and as you point out, uh, there's a risk. If we overuse this sanctions tool, people will try to get out or find a workaround from that system so as to free themselves from the coercive power of U.S. sanctions. I want to ask you about that because we know that China today is pushing to have transactions denominated increasingly in their currency, the yuan or the renminbi, rather than the US dollar, and that they are working and are, are very far along on a mobile payment system where you can do financial transactions on your mobile phone. Um, does this uh, offer the prospect of freeing countries like China, Russia, and Iran from the threat of US sanctions by freeing them from the US dollar? from the international financial system 
as it now exists and really gives them a, a, an alternative. How close are we to that? Uh, and are, in some sense, our sanctions policy going to inevitably drive them to that result? And if so, how far away is that point in time? So there's, there's no question that uh, one of the lessons that countries like China and Russia and Iran have, have taken away from the success of, of U.S. sanctions toward countries like Iran and Russia is that uh, it would be very much in their interest to uh, transform the global economy into one that did not rely on the U.S. dollar. Um, and, and, you know, the Chinese are... Um, ambitious enough to, to sort of dream of a day where, where their currency is the, is the global reserve currency and that they, where they would be able to do to the rest of the world what, what America is able to do today. Uh, we're very far from, from that point, although I, I'm quite convinced the Chinese in the back of their mind, would, I mean, they're, they're studying what America does and, and trying to figure out how they could one day do it themselves. Um, but uh, for the time being, uh, they would be happy for any system other than the current one where uh, the U.S. dollar is, is the dominant um, currency for, for global financial transactions. Um, they, they would like to move in that direction, but the, you know, the center of gravity is um, on this issue is really with the, the other uh, major global economies, uh, the, the Europeans, the Japanese, the Koreans, um, the Indians to, to a lesser extent. Um, and um, so far uh, they have not, um, wanted to abandon the US dollar. Um, we, when, when President Trump came in and reversed uh, the Obama administration's policy on Iran and, and unilaterally reinstituted US sanctions on Iran, including uh, the ones I just described, uh, you know, the, 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 those sanctions that uh, the United States imposed uh, through the global financial system on financial transfers to, to Iran for, for oil exports, um, they went into effect in about 2012, but they were lifted as part of the Iran nuclear deal. Trump reimposed them and he reimposed them unilaterally. And uh, there was a great deal of concern at the time that maybe the rest of the world wouldn't go along with this. Uh, well, in fact, the rest of the world did go along with it. Uh, and most everybody uh, stopped importing Iranian oil uh, as a result of, of the threat of, of the U.S. financial sanctions. Uh, and that, and that, that remains the policy today. Biden has not reversed Trump's policy. Uh, we, and, and in fact, just last last week, new sanctions were imposed on, on some uh, variety of uh, entities that were evading uh, U.S. Uh, oil-related sanctions on Iran. Um, the, the European countries thought at that time when, when Trump reversed this policy about um, you know, trying to move away from the U.S. dollar. They decided it would be too disruptive to their economies, not worth doing. They even tried at one point to set up a parallel uh, currency clearing um, uh, function. Uh, and it, it, it did one or two transactions, but it, it was just too unwieldy. And, and, and so they, they basically have, have set it aside. Um, so for now, um, the, 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 the global financial dominance of the US dollar uh, prevails. Um, but again, the United States needs to be judicious in in flexing its muscles, uh, you know, if we if we overplay our hand, we could uh, drive our allies to 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 the, basically the same perspective that, that Beijing and Moscow have that that uh, this control of uh, this chokehold that the U.S. dollar has on the global economy is um, um, too high a price to pay. Uh, maybe there are benefits from it, but the, you know, the, the loss to them in terms of their 
their economic sovereignty is too great. Um, we, we need to be restrained and not overuse the tool. I, I'll give you an example that uh, struck me. Uh, you know, there, there was a big disagreement between the United States and the Europeans about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And um, I will say the reason the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was not committed or not, not completed um, uh, prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine was because of US sanctions. Uh, uh, and, and most of those sanctions were imposed at the, the direction of the US Congress. But, uh, and so that, that policy succeeded. And I imagine today, even the Europeans are glad they didn't um, bring the Nord Stream 2 pipeline on, online. But at one point in the, in the debate about this with the Europeans disagreeing with the American government about whether that pipeline should go forward, several senators wrote to a city in, in Germany where, where the construction of the pipeline was centered and basically said, you know, we are going to have your city sanctioned um, unless you stop this construction that's taking place from, from your port. Um, you know, that, that, that kind of threat's a little bit over the top, the, the idea that we might, you know, we are going to sanction, basically when we impose asset blocking sanctions, we're trying to put the target out of business. I mean, that is the goal. I mean, we, 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 it's not just trying to inflict pain, we're trying to put them out of business. And um, to, to say we're gonna put a, a city in Germany out of business unless unless they close their port to certain operations, is a, it's a little bit extreme. And um, too much of that kind of conduct and you know maybe the German government decides we need to work with the, the Russians and Chinese to set up some alternative to the US dollar because we, we just can't have Washington DC dictating to our cities what what you know how their ports are going to operate. You've rightly suggested some caution and care in using secondary sanctions against friends and allies. That seems good advice. You also made the point that where we have an agreement on policy with friends and allies, the secondary sanctions issue does not arise because we can all provide and adopt the same set of sanctions directed against the target. There seems to be consensus within between uh, the United States and its European friends and allies with respect to Russia. Uh, as you pointed out, sanctions have been imposed by both the Europeans and the Americans. One thing that is being talked about now, which is sort of analogous to what you were talking about with respect to Iran, is this notion of imposing some kind of price cap on the export of Russian oil so that the oil would continue to move into the international market, but uh, the Russians would not uh, reap the benefits of the heightened price of oil that they've essentially created by their invasion of Ukraine. Could you tell us how that would, how exactly that would work? in application and how close is it to being uh, adopted at this point in time? From everything I see, uh, the pieces are in place to actually impose um, the, the, this price cap. Now, uh, whether whether the, the policies that will that are going to be used will work uh, remains to be seen. Um, the, when, when it was first announced that, that uh, we and our G7 um, allies were going to work to impose a price cap, I thought immediately of the policies I just described about Iranian oil exports because it's a very similar issue. It's about you know, limited with Iran. We were trying to suppress the volume, and then we were trying to stop transfer of, of, the, of the profits or the proceeds uh, to Iran. Um, here, it sounds it seems that the objective isn't to so much to reduce the volume as to reduce the price at which the oil is sold. So, so it's, it's slightly different, but the same sort of policy. Um, 
that the U.S. employed with respect to Iran uh, could be employed to achieve or try to achieve uh, this Russian price cap. But that's not actually the direction uh, that the U.S. and Europe are going right now. Um, but in, in, in the case of both the United States and Europe, um, all indications are that we will not be using secondary sanctions to enforce the price cap, but rather uh, we're, we're going to be using primary sanctions in parallel. Primary sanctions are the ones that, are, that apply yeah. to our own citizens. And so in the case of both Europe and the United States, uh, and I think Japan and Canada and, and the UK, um, what we will be doing is uh, prohibiting our nationals uh, from providing uh, services for the export, the seaborne uh, export or transportation of Russian oil, uh, unless the price at which that oil is sold is below the cap that, that, that we declare. And I don't think they've announced what the, what the price cap is going to be, but you know, it'll be some, something substantially below the global market price. And the way that will work is that um, tanker companies that are subject to US or European jurisdiction, insurance companies, uh, you, it, basically you can't operate a tanker without insurance because of the, the liability uh, issues that, that you face. Um, and then banks that, that might finance um, the, the oil exports. Uh, all of them would be forbidden to provide these services unless it was established that the oil being transported had been sold below the price cap level. Um, that, that's the direction we're going. Um, like I said, it may or may not work. Uh, you know, we are in, in full concert with the Europeans on this. So uh, that, that's part of the reason I think uh, the US is not threatening secondary sanctions. Um, because I mean, if you think about the insurance issue, you know, Lloyd's of London is the critical player. So you know, the British are actually in a much better position to, to uh, uh, limit the availability of insurance than, than the United States. And, and if they're fully on board, we maybe don't need to deploy secondary sanctions. Um, that said, uh, legislation has been introduced in Congress to, to apply um, basically the Iran model to um, Russian oil exports uh, above the price cap. So I would say um, for now, the policy looks like it will be implemented through um, parallel primary sanctions um, imposed by the US, Europe and, and other key allies. But if that doesn't work, I, I think Congress is, is, is going to encourage the use of, of uh, secondary sanctions as, a, as are, are currently being employed with respect to Iran. Steve, I wanna thank you for your time today. You've given us a wonderful primer on the role of sanctions, both historically and today in the National Security Toolkit. And I think it's been very instructive for all of us. I just wanna thank you for your time and appreciate your joining us today. Well, it's been my pleasure, Steve. It's always great to talk to you. And um, uh, I'm very happy to discuss this subject. It's what I do for a living. And uh, <laughs> I spend a lot of time thinking about these issues. It's great to be able to talk about them. Terrific, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.